If you're not already there, turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. It's on page 836 of your Pew Bibles. And up to this point, we have been looking at um, the fact that in the book of Mark, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Several weeks ago, we see the declaration and the anointing of Jesus by the waters of the Jordan where he passed through the waters and associated himself with the, the lost sinners of Israel. And then it is after as he walked out of the waters, the very Spirit of God came down and anointed him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, he was thrust into the wilderness as a new Israel and a new time of testing where Israel failed in 40 years in the desert. Jesus was faithful 40 days being tested and he came back and he declared last week, actually several thousand years ago, but we looked at it last week, that the kingdom of God is at hand and he called us to respond to this power of the kingdom that it was moving and working. Respond, repent and believe. Repent and believe. See, Mark is setting the stage for this epic battle that is about to happen where we see the ramifications at first where Satan is unsuccessful at tempting Jesus and now Jesus with the kingdom of God, he is proclaiming it and he's coming into the cities now. Now, normally I I give you my big idea and then I give you my points. I want to give you my big idea and I want to give you the story and then give you some ramifications. I was told this week, Gil figured out my pattern of sermon, so I figured I need to change it up a little bit with the narrative. But no, I really, you, sometimes you preach at different, different times, so careful about that. But I want you to know today, right off the bat, as we look at this story, that there is no power, natural or supernatural, that can thwart the power of the gospel. And remember, the gospel is not what we do. The gospel is what God has done for us Through Christ, Jesus is the gospel. His life, his righteousness, his death on behalf of sinners and his resurrection. That is the good news of the gospel that God has come to his people to save them. There is no power, natural or supernatural, that can thwart the power of the gospel. Notice in verse 21, as our, uh, our, the scene shifts away from the wilderness and the barren wilderness uh, where Jesus was baptized and tempted and he called his, the people to repent and believe. And now the scene shifts as it fades. The director, move, Mark, moves the camera now to a little fishing town named Capernaum. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, he being Jesus. And they were astonished, for he taught with them as one with authority, not like the scribes. Remember, last week Jesus came to the side of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter and James were by the the shores, and he said, follow me, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then he went, uh, we don't know how long, but then he saw James and John. And he said, follow me. And it said, immediately they left their father and the hired servants and they followed Jesus. The immediacy, the authority of God who has authority to call you out 
over your career and your family. That is Jesus. And now he comes, and unbeknownst to the listeners in that sleepy synagogue that, that morning in a little sleepy town of Capernaum, just northwest of the Sea of Galilee, we see Jesus come, and he is about to let them know and be able to see the power and the impact of the gospel. Now, I know this is um, it's a small map, and you may have maps in your Bibles, but just to give you an idea, uh, here's the Dead Sea. This is Jerusalem. Uh, a lot happens in Jerusalem, a little farther off, but this is the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum is this little town right here. Galilee area, uh, and Capernaum is where this, the settings of this story, and then the little towns that surround it, that Jesus' ministry begins in this area. Now this congregation in Capernaum was composed of just ordinary fishermen and merchants and craftsmen and laborers and their wives. And as faithful Jews, they would have worked for six days, would have rested from their labor, and they would have come together, gathered together with the people of God to hear the Word of God read and some singing and then some explanation and teaching very similar to what we do each week. They reserve the Sabbath to, with the people of God to pray and read and hear the teaching of the Scripture. Now, oftentimes, at this time, they didn't have a, a pastor, per se, or a rabbi in the Jewish synagogue tradition, but they had scribes. And scribes were the original PhDs of the time. They were well-learned men who had studied Scripture and knew Scripture. They, were, they devoted themselves to knowing the law of God, the Torah. They taught the Torah to the Jews. And they were even the legal authority about the civil in implications of that. They were the ju judge and juries for d domestic and civil disputes. How do, do these people live together? Mark, uh, throughout his gospel, alludes to some of the teachings of the scribes and how Jesus comes in and, and offers a profound reinterpretation, the really heart of the gospel, but things like only God can forgive sins. Uh, first, Elijah must come before the Son of Man. And then the scribes said, the Christ is the Son of David, for they knew and they had studied the Scripture. And, but the problem with the scribes is that their authority was based on the tradition of men. Now keep your finger here in Mark chapter 1, but flip four or five pages over to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, 842 if you're in the Pew Bibles. Mark chapter 7, Jesus, and we'll see this in a few months, Jesus comes face to face and he locks horns with these Pharisees and scribes. Most of the scribes are probably Pharisees as well. But notice in verse 8 of chapter 7, the authority of the scribes was built on tradition and education. Notice verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. How? In order to establish your tradition. You see, they studied the Word of God, the law of God, the Torah, so much, but, but they began to manipulate and twist it because it was no longer the Word of God, but it was the education, the understanding of previous teachers. And then it, Jesus continues, look at verse 13. Thus... 
making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things that you do. See, the word of God had become so obscured. The um, veneer of tradition and the residue of tradition had built up so much that the word of God, the heart of God, had been obscured by the traditions of people. The authority of the scribes was their adherence to tradition, to the rabbinical tradition, and they were in bondage to their quotation marks. They loved to quote the authorities. Rabbi Hillel says this, but on the other hand, Gamaliel says this, and then there's Rabbi Eleazar's testimony. Their authority was in how well they regurgitated the traditions and the teachings of men and not of God. And this would become apparent when Jesus came and he opened up the, 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 the word of God and began to teach. But that day, that ordinary day in Capernaum, a fresh wind began to blow. A gentle breeze at first, and then it would stir to be a mighty wind for a teacher unlike the people had ever seen before had become had come and ascended to the pulpit to teach. A teacher who taught with power and authority. A teacher who was mighty in word, but also in deed. A teacher who struck fear in the heart of both natural and supernatural forces. In verse 22, and they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them one who had authority and not the scribes. The one who called the disciples from their families and their careers was also now had astounding power in his teaching. And those who heard it, those who sat in the pews, if you will, that day were thunderstruck at the authority of the one who was speaking. See, Jesus did not fit into their preconceived religious categories and there were his, their comfortable expectations. Jesus possessed a divine authority and these people were set on edge and they were alarmed and they were uncomfortable. They didn't know what to do with him because he was so different than that they have ever seen before. You see, Jesus did not speak with the authority of the tradition and the teaching of men. Jesus spoke with the authority and of the voice in heaven that said, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus was anointed by God to be the emissary of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus spoke, the authority of God spoke through him and in him. Jesus' authority did not derive from the traditions of elders or the traditions and establishments and religion of men, but the scribe, like the scribes, but from the very Father in heaven almighty. Now, in Mark's style, sometimes when we read through this as curious readers, we think what? What did Jesus say? I want to know what Jesus said. It begs that question. But Mark never told us what Jesus taught in the synagogue that day. Because Mark didn't want, to know, uh, didn't want us to know what he taught. Jesus wanted to know us to know who he was. See, if you, ever, if you have a red-letter Bible and you go through it, you can, if you go through the various Gospels, you can go to the book of Mark, and you'll notice the black letters actually outnumber the red letters. 
And they're little pithy statements and true, little combated truth that are immediately followed up with mighty deeds and wonders, uh, uh, as opposed to John, where John chapter 3, John 3, 16, we know that that's actually a part of the big, long soliloquy that Jesus gives, these long, chapter-long monologues. And Matthew is the same way. But Mark is intending something different. Mark doesn't want you to focus on the, the specific teaching of Jesus. Mark wants you to focus on who Jesus is is. It's this great power that's disrupting the kingdoms, the power of earth, and the power, spiritual powers that are happening, because Jesus is working and moving. Jesus is the main focus of Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't want you to know a what, he wants you to know a who. The people of Capernaum were stunned. They were thunderstruck. They were in awe because they didn't know what to, that the voice of God himself was reverberating off the humble walls of their synagogue that morning, that ordinary Sabbath morning. However, they would quickly realize that Jesus, who wielded authority in his teaching, was not your ordinary bear. He was not your ordinary teacher. There was something more, and they didn't know what was going on. Notice verse 23. And immediately there was in this synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. Shut up. Come out of him. Yes, don't say shut up, kids. <laughs> this is what happened when you get rebuked by your son in the pulpit by following your own rules. Something happened in the synagogue that day when Jesus proclaimed the good news of the gospel in Capernaum. The spiritual forces stood at attention. As you read through the book, Mark, you realize that the true identity of Jesus is not realized by any human until Jesus is on the cross. When the very uh, executioner, the, the Roman guard, says, truly this man was the Son of God, at that, that point, even the disciples were really not fully aware of the identity who, of Jesus. But do you know who was aware? The spiritual forces were aware. The demons were aware. Satan himself was aware of the identity of the person who was teaching in the synagogue that, that day, and they trembled with irreverent fear. Mark tells us that one of the members of the synagogue, a human, was possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, when we hear unclean spirits, and it is another word for demon, uh, Mark will use demon later on, but he uses unclean spirits many well, often. And what we have to do is we have to be careful that we are not falling into the trap of our modern day society, where we have demons as silly creatures with horns and pitchforks that have a mischievous snark and irreverence about them, and they just cause mess everywhere they go. And it's not just a dark underworld cartoon um, digital thing, Dungeons and Dragons or whatever you might call them. But unclean spirits are the hideous spiritual forces who seize control of an image bearer of God in order to torment and to destroy that person by twisting and maiming and alienating that person from God and from other people. I know often in my pastoral ministry, 
I've never had like an exorcist experience, but I have seen people. And I say, there's something not right. That person is under spiritual bondage. These spirits are the epitome of all that is evil and unclean. They're the very antithesis of the purity and the holiness of God. However, these fallen angels are really, really, really good theologians. The army of Satan knows well the implications of the gospel, which means eternal doom for their kingdom. Revelation chapter 12, probably one of my favorite chapters in the book of Revelation, is this metaphorical story of the dragon and the woman, and it ultimately pictures Christ and Satan and the church. But towards midway through the story, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, because Satan has been cast out of heaven who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, and all the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath in bitterness, and rage. And what is he doing? Destroying the earth. Why? Because he knows his time is short. Just like the, ally, or the Axis forces of Hitler, after D-Day, their time was short. They knew the battle was quickly fading for them and they were losing, but they fought all the more vehemently and desperately. Satan knows that the proclamation of the gospel is the end of his kingdom and he is fighting bitterly to the end. And when Jesus entered the synagogue that day, he immediately recognized Jesus and hated. It was hated by Jesus. He hated Jesus. The text doesn't tell us, though, but I observed, was this a newcomer to the synagogue that day? Or was it somebody who had been there every week and sat under the teaching of the scribes and was comfortable in that? But now when Jesus stood in the presence of his people, that spiritual, unclean spirit could not stay silent. Now before we go on, we have to make two notes. One, uh, modern ears do two things with this text. When they hear demons and unclean spirits, you have uh, a complete dismissal that this was some kind of psychosis, that this is some kind of mental illness, and they disregard and dismiss this as ancient tomfoolery, this, this spiritual forces, this is, that's, that's silly, and they discard it. But then the flip side of that, the knee-jerk reaction to that, is to see a demon under every doily, or to say whenever they did so, they do, when people do something bad, the devil made me do it. Folks, our heart is wicked. The devil doesn't need to do a lot to be able to bring out the worst in us. Uh, he can, he can uh, help us out, but we really downplay the severity of the heart of God. And when we just find a, a demon in everything or we dismiss and find super, no supernatural powers, both attitudes are trivializing the mortal combat that exists between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Because when the, when the spiritual forces come face to face with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the holy anointed one by God, they recognize the danger to their kingdom and they want nothing to do with Jesus. Notice verse 24 as it continues. The, uh, the, the demon trying, grasping at something, uh, says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He says, in essence, you don't belong here. This is not your territory. This is where we belong. 
Some scholars say that they were trying, and, and, and it happened in the Old Testament, you can see these patterns where uh, somebody on the defensive will try to be aggressive and, and set the, set the, 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 the um, conversation, be able to put Jesus on the defensive and make Jesus justify his actions and make Jesus be able to put the onus on him and so that the demon could be in control. And then he continues, the demon grasping at saws, tries to get the identity and say, oh, I've, I know who you really are. I know what you're up to. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He says, don't fool me. You don't fool me, Jesus. I know what you're doing. Scholars believe in the ancient world, in the exorcisms and that, that you would say names and power and this things to be able to control the spirits. And this is what the demon is trying to do in this waging war against Jesus. But notice the words of Jesus in verse 25. He simply, quietly, and calmly says, be silent. Be quiet. Come out of him. He makes no appeals to a higher superpower. He doesn't rattle off a litany of spiritual charms or words or incantations. He simply commands in his authority the demon to hush and to get out, and the demon has no choice but to obey. Brothers and sisters, when an unclean spirit comes in contact with the Holy One of God, the Holy Spirit, it has no authority because the greater power is He, that is Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the demons flee. Verse 27, and they were amazed. The congregation, the synagogue were like, wow, glad I didn't skip synagogue today. And so they question among themselves, what is this? Who is this? Very thing that the disciples, when they were sitting in the boat with Jesus after the wind and the waves stopped, they got more scared that even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this that is sitting in our synagogue that the very demons hush and flee at the sound of his voice? This is a new teaching with authority. It's not just a teaching of word, but it's a teaching of deed. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. People didn't know what to do with Jesus. He was powerful. He was authoritative. He was amazing. And they didn't understand the significance of what was happening, but they knew something is happening in our midst and we have no categories. We have no answers. We don't know what's going on. And they weren't very comfortable with that. Yet one thing they realized is he was no ordinary teacher. He was no ordinary man. He was so much more. Sadly, for many in the congregation that day, the awe and the wonder never translated into genuine faith. And the, revelation, the realization that the kingdom of God had invaded the kingdom of Satan went over their heads and they didn't understand what was going on in their midst. From here on out, the crowds would begin to grow. They're like, did you hear what happened in Capernaum? 
Did you hear what happened at Galilee? And Jesus' fame grew, and they said, something is amazing is happening, and he, he commands the demons, he, he commands his disciples to follow him, he commands the sea, he's going to command diseases, and they flee, they obey. Something is happening. The power of God is moving in the kingdoms of this earth, but they don't understand the significance of what is happening. And I pray that as we read through Mark, and we hear the words of Jesus firsthand, and we see this beautiful picture, this mosaic that Mark is showing us of Christ, the authoritative king who has come to the world to defeat the powers of Satan, to redeem his people from their sin, and to bring them into the kingdom of the Father, that we don't miss it. Because we're looking for the wrong Jesus. We're looking for Jesus that we want. A Jesus in our liking, a comfortable Jesus, a Jesus who we can control and manipulate, not the Jesus who strikes fear into our heart because he's the conquering king. So therefore, there are three implications of this story, this narrative that we see. The first is that to submit to who Jesus is, not just what Jesus teaches. To submit who Jesus is, not just what Jesus teaches. The second one is to seek the miracle worker not just the miracle. Seek the miracle worker, not just the miracle. And then finally, trust the completed work of Jesus, not just his power. The completed work, not just his power. So let's take a look. Let's unpack those, what significance those are. One, submit to who Jesus is, not what Je just to what Jesus teaches. I feel that there are many today in our pews here, in other churches, in the church at large, and in our streets, and in our culture, who are like the people of Capernaum. They hear what Jesus taught, and they recognize that he's not ordinary, but they fail to recognize who Jesus is. You see, they see Jesus as a great source of inspiration. He's a comfort. He's a curiosity. He, he's a source of great wisdom, but little else other than that. See, unlike the people of Capernaum, Jesus had become, has become comfortable and manageable to many of the people in the pews today. They have reduced Jesus to a religious activity once a week, a theological speculations, an academic pursuit, all the while failing to see the significance of Jesus and the significance of Mark's pronouncement of who Jesus is. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. They see Jesus as a good teacher. We're going to put him up there in the echelon with the great ones. But he's just in the, 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 um, the group of gods, the pantheon of gods. The kingdom of God does not come through teaching or tradition, academic pursuits, or even theological pursuits. The kingdom of God comes through a person, the person of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel is not simply a set of empty platitudes and theological principles and guideposts for living that we quote in times of sorrow and times of trouble to dull the pain and be an opium for the masses. The gospel is a pronouncement that Jesus Christ has come with full authority of the Father declaring war on the powers of sin and death in order to set his people free. The cross was not a just tragic end to a, a, a spectacular life or a gross injustice or a misunderstanding. The gospel is the good news. The cross is the good news. That was the beachhead where Satan was defeated by death that Satan thought he was winning, but God used it to deliver his people. Jesus is the anointed son of God who alone has power to set people free from the bondage of sin and death. He is not simply a wise teacher to be cited. He's a conquering king to be obeyed with all of your thoughts and all of your body and all of your words and all of your life. Ocean Park, do you hear the testimony of Matthew when he says, and he gives you this picture of Jesus? Do you tremble in reverent love and fear before the king of the kings, or do you yawn as if you're enduring a tediously excruciating lecture? Make no mistakes. The one whose word shook the hearts of the people of Capernaum is the very Son of God. Do you know who Jesus is? The second thing in the implications from our text this morning is to not only submit to who Jesus is, not just who, what Jesus teaches, but to seek the miracle worker, not just the miracle See, whenever we read texts like this, we're amazed the power of Jesus in miracles. Jesus can cast out demons, he can heal the sick, he can even raise the dead. That's incredible. And immediately, our hearts are thunderstruck. We're in awe. This man was significant, as it says, a prophet mighty indeed. However, rather than responding in reverent fear, we begin to consider what Jesus can do for us. Wow, this Jesus is pretty significant. I'm in a jam. Who are you going to call? Forget Ghostbusters. Call Jesus. And what we do, and so we do, we reduce Jesus from the almighty King of Kings, the very Lord of Lords who has the, the host of heaven at his hands, who sits in authority for whom all things were created for him and through him. We have reduced him to a genie and the lamp or a cosmic butler. We ring the bell when we get in a jam and he's going to come and get us out. We begin to think, if Jesus can cast out demons, he can do this, fill in the blank for me. If Jesus can silence the unclean spirit, he can certainly do fill in the blank for me. We begin to look Jesus as some sort of short-order chef rather than the sovereign king of heaven. When this happens, we reduce Jesus, the almighty God, to a cosmic butler or a genie who we rub his lamp and who exists to fix my marriage or to heal my diseases, to pay my bills, to entertain me, to raise my kids, to fight my battles, to do my job, to silence my credit and make my decisions. Now let me say, because Jesus is king, because he's a good king, we can trust him with all of that. 
But we don't go to Jesus because he can get us what we want. We go to Jesus because he brings us to what we need, and that is fellowship with God himself. And when we have fellowship with God, we know that our greatest enemy was defeated. So the little things like paying the bills and dealing with our diseases and our struggles and our children and our worries and our fear, we can put them before the king and we can trust him because he knows what he's doing. If Jesus doesn't say, often though, if Jesus doesn't say how high when we tell him to jump, we cut him off and we grow disillusioned and bitterness and resentful because Jesus isn't acting the way we want him to do. I can never serve a God who doesn't do exactly what I want him to do when I want him to do it in the way that I want him to do it. We have the audacity of doing such things and shaking our puny fists at heaven and says, why won't you do what I tell you to do? Like, like would we do it with our children? They don't listen to either. Why would God listen to us? Archmarket, the only reason we come to Jesus is for the miracles. We will end up sorely disappointed because we're following a false Jesus. The miracles of Jesus were signs that the advent of the kingdom of God was coming. They were a sneak preview of what is to come. Now let me say, Jesus can do miracles today. He does. Jesus is able to cast out the demons, the unclean spirits that oppress people's hearts and the minds. Jesus can heal you and make you well. Yet if that's the reason we come to Jesus, is like befriending a stranger by saying, I'm going to be your friend is so I can use you for what I really want. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be said, I'm going to be your friend because you have a truck and I need to move, or I'm going to be your friend because I need your money, or, or you have your influence or your connections. That is the dysfunction that is the prosperity gospel. They tell desperate people, come to Jesus and he will take away your sorrows and your burdens and your pain, and he will give you health, wealth, and prosperity, and everything will be right. All we need is your little bit of your money. And they take advantage of people who are desperate in need, who need the truth of who Jesus is, and they don't know the true Jesus, and they're exploited by wolves and hucksters. This is not the gospel. This is an old-fashioned snake oil salesman who shrouds him or herself in a religious cloak. They make blue-sky promises. They sell a bottle of phony elixirs, and they leave town with your money and your hopes and your dreams, and your understanding of who Jesus is is devastating because you realize you were chasing an, uh, 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 a, um, that thing in the desert, uh, Oasis, thank you. Oasis in the desert. Ocean Park, don't come to Jesus just for the miracles. Oh, he can do miracles. He can do great things. In the Gospels, the exorcisms were tangible representations that the kingdom of Satan was breaking and that the reign of God was being established. They were visible expressions of the, of the, the cosmic battle that rage is beyond our ability to see. We are witnesses. This, this synagogue in Capernaum was witnesses of the battle that is raging before us that our eyes cannot see and our hands cannot touch and our minds cannot perceive the seriousness of it. The purpose of the miracles is to bring us to the foot of the cross in humble submission, not to the pearly gates looking for a handout. 
The gospel is not the good news that Jesus can make all your problems go away. The gospel is the declaration that at the cross, your greatest enemy was defeated and we can have fellowship with God through the victory of the cross. The miracles remind us of the wonder and the majesty of the one who does the miracle. Remember, when you go through the, the Gospels, when you read through the book of Acts, every single one of the 5,000 people that tasted the bread on the shores that day died. Every person that Jesus raised from the dead died again. They went over two in their lives. Every person that Jesus healed suffered another malady of some sort and they died. The miracles were never intended to be an end of themselves. The miracles were intended to draw us closer to the miracle worker. When we get in texts like this, it's very dangerous where I know some of you are going to email me about demons and you're going to ask me questions about demons and tell me about your Aunt Agnes who you think her dog may have been possessed by the devil. You'll come up with things. But I, I pray of you, I beg of you, don't exclusively focus on the demons, but don't ignore them. Focus on the healer who defeated the demons at the cross. Allow the miracle worker to draw you into fear and reverence and love for the miracle worker. Jesus Christ, who had the power and authority over sin and death and commanded the demons to be quiet, and they obeyed him. Ocean Park, do you know the one who conquered the forces of sin and death and calls you into relationship with himself, or do you see him as a means of what you really want? I ask you to submit. Submit to who Jesus is, not what Jesus teaches. Seek the miracle worker, not just the miracle, and trust the work of Jesus, not just his power. Have you ever noticed when Jesus performs a miracle, and we see this a lot, He always tells the person, be quiet. Don't tell anybody. Go to the temple, do this, don't. Rarely does he say, hey, get on the bullhorn, go on social media, I want you to tweet it, I want you to like it, I want you to live stream. Here, Peter, hold my phone, I'm going to heal this dude on live stream. Jesus doesn't do this. Because why? Because the the joy, uh, or I'm sorry, the fame of the crowds distracts from the work and the mission that Jesus is on. See, the, the popularity and the overwhelming of the crowds can misread, uh, mislead and destroy the reasons why Jesus came. You see, the demons knew the victorious Son of God had power and authority, and Satan tried to twist that power and authority to use it against the Father and for his own thing. We see that in the other Gospels when we actually see the content of temptation. Jesus, uh, the Satan says, well, Jesus, call down the angels or throw yourself off the temple, or turn this rock into bread. Perverting that power and that fame against the mission that Jesus is on. But Jesus, his crosshairs were on the cross, on sin and death, and he never deviated from that mission. The mission, really the high point of Mark, we see in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, though he deserves it, All creation sings his glory, and he's worthy of praise, and all creation will. We read that this morning in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon. 
But Jesus came not to serve, be served, but to serve. And how did he do that? To give his life as a ransom for many. The glory of the king was seen when he willfully and humbly laid down his life and raised it back up again. Jesus' power could, could, on, uh, Jesus power could only be demonstrated in his weakness. We can often recognize Jesus for who he was and what he did, or who he is and what he is. He's powerful, he's victorious, he's authoritative, and we can use him for our agenda. We ignore the fact that he was the suffering servant that laid himself down, his life down. We ignore the fact that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. You can be awed by the power of God and fail to know the purposes of why God sent Christ, because he loved the world, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, I, I, see, and I think we don't get it as a church. Because the church is so preoccupied with political power and social fame and using, building our own kingdoms and trying to be, you know, I'm going to be famous for Jesus and powerful for Jesus. But we really, we forget the mission of redemption that really why Jesus came. And sadly, by doing that, all we do is we bolster the, our own kingdoms and the kingdom of this world when we forget and we minimize and we downplay and we ignore the reason why Jesus came, to lay his life down in weakness and vulnerability that he may defeat the powers of sin. The kingdom of God was not established by sheer power, but power made perfect in weakness at the cross. Notice in verse 26, you see the ugly, ruthless power of the kingdom of this world. The unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Satan and his armies have paid no attention to the pain and murder and havoc that they cause, and it wrecks and it wreaks on people's bodies, on, fam on families and societies. They will use anyone and anything to further their kingdom and to corrupt the image bearers of God. I have watched as people have de destroyed themselves under the power of unclean spirits and the sinfulness of their heart, and it causes me to weep. That day in Capernaum, the cry of an unclean spirit demonstrated the vileness and the wretchedness and the ugliness of sin. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Verses, starting in verse 33, it's on 853 of your pew Bible. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. This is on the, at the crucifixion. And the sixth hour, noon, had come, and there was darkness over the whole of the land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with a sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And here's the very words that the demon who, when he was coming out of the man, uttered a loud cry, Jesus entered into our humanity and our frailty to save us. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple that se separated God and man was torn in two from top to bottom. 
When the centurion who stood facing him saw it in this way, he breathed his last and he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The powers of this world will come in and destroy and maim and kill. But the Holy Spirit of God, God's anointed Jesus Christ, comes to lay his life down and to give life and give it abundantly. The cross was always the goal, and he, Jesus never deviated from that for the praise and the adoration of the kingdom of God. For without the, cro- the cross, we would not know, be able to know God. Ocean Park, until we realize the utter hopelessness and helplessness we have as sinners to stand before a holy God, we will never recognize the power of the cross and the importance of the work of why Jesus came. I close and I ask you, do you know the power of the completed work of Christ on the cross? Or are you amused by the power and the mighty deeds of Jesus? And I reassure you, and as Mark tells us, there is no natural power or supernatural power that can thwart the power of God. Therefore, we submit to who Jesus is and not what Jesus teaches only. We seek the miracle worker, not just the miracle. We trust the completed work of Jesus, not just his power. For it was at the cross when we see the power of God working in Christ and through Christ to bring us into fellowship with God.